So today, we're going to continue in Psalm 79, our look at the songs for the summer, our opportunity to just really soak in the psalms, these, uh, these pictures of worship um, in the time of David, in the time of Solomon, and even in the time of Moses. So today, I want to ask you, what is the best attribute of God? What would be the number one attribute that you would be like, if I had to explain to someone who'd never heard of God, and I said, well, God is like this, what would that be? Say that again. Okay, someone who looks over you. I like that. Well, I wasn't expecting interaction, but hey, if you guys want, anybody else have one they want to share? Love, forgiveness, okay. Faithful, what? I am that I am. Okay, there's some theology there. So we have all these, these phrases. There's all these omni-phrases, right? These, these $5 church words, the omnipotent, omnipresent, um, um, omni-everything. Omni just means all. So when we see omnipotent, it means all-powerful. Omniscient means all-knowing. Omnipresent means everywhere. Omnibenevolent means all-good. Love, kindness. We could walk through the list perfect, unchanging, just. Sometimes we like the just. Sometimes we don't want them to be just. Forgiving, merciful. But one that I don't think would even make anybody's top 10 is jealous. I don't think that many people would go, I like that God's jealous. Because we kind of get a weird feeling about that, and we go, well, God, can God really be jealous? I thought jealousy was a sin. Can this be an attribute of God? See, we humans, we, we dislike jealousy. It's actually one of the things that we don't like about other people. We also don't like it's, it's distant or, well, it's near relatives, maybe even twins of covetous and envy, right? They're kind of all in the same family. They're triplets, right? As a matter of fact, even, even the modern media gets this. L.A. Times said that jealousy is possibly the most destructive emotion housed in the human brain. The New York Times said that one out of every five murders is because of jealousy. Those are some pretty interesting statistics and stats. Shakespeare got this. He said that jealousy is a green-eyed monster, which is, by the way, where we get the idea of green with jealousy, right, or envy. That came from Shakespeare. So what, what does our world say jealousy comes from? Because if this is an attribute of God, then we need to try to understand how that works and how it's not sinful for God to be jealous. Well, we have psychiatrists that tell us jealousy is from low self-esteem and poor self-image. If you don't feel attractive and confident, it's hard to believe that anyone else will feel you're that way. So that's where jealousy comes from. Well, that definition of jealousy doesn't work for God. God doesn't have a self-esteem problem. God does not have a poor self-image. So that definition doesn't work. I think it doesn't work for a lot of reasons. But even more so, the Bible says jealousy is a sin. Like I told you about envy and covetousness. I mean, that's in the Ten Commandments right there. It says, don't covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your, covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or female servant or ox or donkey. And I know those are not things that you all are coveting in your neighbors. It means their stuff. Don't be jealous that this person has that and you don't. This is listed as one of the seven deadly sins, which, by the way, is not listed in the Bible as the seven deadly sins. That was made up as a summary. But as a matter of fact, in Galatians, it says, now the works of the flesh are these 
Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. So how is it that God can be jealous and not have it be a sin? It almost seems hypocritical. God tells us, don't be jealous, but I'm jealous, right? And we, we kind of could also say, don't be, don't be proud, right? Because God says, don't be prideful, don't think too highly of yourself, but then God says, I'm the highest, I'm the best, worship me. That seems almost hypocritical. So maybe there's another way to understand jealousy. The word jealousy comes from Latin through Greek to the French, and then we get it. It basically means zeal for something. It means a boiling over of zeal is actually where it comes from. So then the negative version of jealousy would be boiling over for zeal for yourself. Like, I can't wait to talk about me. That's kind of the the picture we see here. So how can this be an attribute of God? Could it be that maybe God is the only being in the universe where being jealous is not a sin? I'll leave that hanging there. We're going to try to answer that today. So here's our big idea. God is jealous for his own glory. And that's going to take up the first part of our sermon here. We're going to to dig into that. What does it mean that God is jealous for his glory? And as a part of that, I'm going to talk about what glory is and how it is that God deserves it and desires it. We're going to also talk about God being secure and also being satisfied. So that's the first part, and that's going to kind of preempt and kind of lay the foundation for the psalm. The second part of the big idea here, which gives us a picture of how to approach him in times of suffering. So the psalm is going to tell us how is it that we can go to God, this God that is jealous for his name, that is jealous for our worship and desirous of that. How is it that we are to approach this God And we're going to find out it's probably not the way most of us would do it. Most of us approach God very differently than how this psalm is there. So we're going to see that we have to describe what we're going through. We're going to call out to God. Kyle, can you put that back up there for a little bit? I think people are still working on getting it down. We're going to see that you can ask questions of God. You're going to see that you can say, God, I don't understand. Can you please do something different? But the posture, the the approach that the psalmist takes is all based on God's jealousy, on God's desire for his name to be made great. So that's what we're going to look at today. So as we dig into this first part, what does it mean for God to be jealous? So this is the first question we're going to answer. What does it mean for God to be jealous? Well, first of all, don't take my word for it that the Bible says God is jealous. I want to show you some verses. All right. Exodus chapter 20. Verses 4 and 5 from the Ten Commandments as well. Do not make for yourselves a God to look like anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not worship them or work for them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I punish the children, even the great-grandchildren, for the sins of the Father who hate me. So we see right there, he says, I am jealous. Okay, so, you know, maybe he's having a bad day. Maybe that's just, you know, kind of a one-off, but no, that doesn't work for God. Besides the fact that God's unchanging and that wouldn't fit with what he teaches, the Bible actually says he is jealous. He is a jealous. His name is jealous. Look at Exodus 34, verses 13 and 14. Instead, you're to tear down their altars, break their objects of worship, cut down their false gods. For you must not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous 
is a jealous God. His name is jealous. Now, first thing we need to notice about this jealousy that we're seeing here is that in each instance, it's because somebody is giving something to giving worship to something else other than him. So that's the first thing we need to see, is that God's jealousy is stirred up by the fact he's not getting what he's owed. He's not getting what he rightly deserves. An example of this that, that I think makes sense is if a husband sees someone flirting with his wife. He has every right to be jealous, for only he has the right. And I would say, men, the obligation to flirt with your wife. You should be the one flirting with your wife. You should be the one adoring your wife. This type of jealousy is not sinful. It's not sinful for someone who is taking something that is rightfully yours and abusing it for you to want to fix that. Rather, it's appropriate. Being jealous for something that God declares to belong to you is good and appropriate. Jealousy is only a sin when you go for something that does not belong to you. Worship, praise, honor, adoration, these belong to God and God alone. And when we give it to something else, he is jealous for that and says, no, get it back where it belongs. Get it back rightly onto me. Therefore, God, when he is jealous, it is right. It is not a sin. And God is unique in this, which we shouldn't be surprised that God is unique in this because ultimately God is unique in that he's the only being in the universe that is the best. And so when he says, worship the best, he is pointing to himself. And he's saying, worship me. He created us for the sole purpose of worshiping him. And when we go somewhere else, he says, no, 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 don't do that. Come back to me. And this is his form of jealousy. It is a righteous jealousy. So, three points under this jealousy that I want to hit. The first one is that God desires and deserves all glory. God desires and deserves all glory. Glory is praise. Glory is saying correct statements about God. So when we say that God deserves and desires this, this is what we were made for. God made us. We could even talk about something like a God-shaped hole, but I don't think that that works. I think it's a God-shaped life, right? It can't just be we have a little hole where we stick God into. No, it's a life that we have to stick God into. And God desires for our lives to be pointed fully to Him and to point reflecting back to Him His glory. But it, you know, it sounds weird. It sounds selfish that God would say, worship me, worship me. But if you think about it, if God said worship anything else, that thing would now be above God, and that would be God. So what God is doing when he says worship me, I'm the best, he's speaking truth, because one of those omnis is that he is all truth. He is the truth. He cannot speak falsehood. He cannot speak lies. So when he says you need to worship me, he's saying exactly the truth. I am the best. I am the one that needs to be worshiped. I am what you were made for. So that's the first thing we see is that God desires and deserves all glory. The second thing we see, because this is where we kind of get the jealousy thing wrong, and the second one is God is completely secure. Most of the time when we think of jealousy, it's because the person, the reason jealousy comes about is because the person is insecure in their relationship. You know, you saw that in the psychiatry definition of self-esteem or self-image or something like that. Usually, jealousy is from someone who can't really, you know, oh, I, she's looking at other guys. No, I'm jealous. That doesn't work for God. 
See, God is 100% completely secure in knowing that he's the best, that he is God, and that he is the perfect solution to our problems. There's no envy in him. Because there's no good thing that's not his already. There's no coveting in him because everything belongs to him. It's not as if he's missing something. There is no self-esteem issue with God. He is supremely good and supremely glorious and supremely aware of that. Third thing we see is that God is supremely satisfying. Nothing can compare with him. He's not worried about you finding someone better. I mean, even if you're, you're, you're dating or you're engaged to that, that perfect woman for you, I know at least in my mind, and maybe I'm the only one here, I thought, well, what if she finds something better? Better hurry up and get married. Because, I mean, that's what we think. What, there's always something better. God goes, I am the best. There is none better than me. And he's satisfied in that. See, the thing is, God, if God made all of us and none of us were to glorify him or choose to follow him, he would still be infinitely glorified in himself. This is some deep waters. We've talked about this before with the Trinity. Is that before God made all of us puny little ant humans, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were in perfect harmony, perfect love with each other for all of eternity. God didn't go, you know what I'm really missing is I, I really wish I had this ant farm that looked like an earth, and I really wish that we could, you know, have some problems. I mean, I feel like we bring more problems to God than really the praise that he's due. See, God was ultimately satisfied with all of that, but he wanted to share that with more. He wanted more to see that. And so he made us as little teeny mirrors to reflect his glory, and that's why he made us. And so when he gives us himself, he is giving what will ultimately satisfy us. We try with so many things in this world. We try something for a while, and it works for a little bit, and we're like, oh, this is really good. I really like this. I don't need God. But just like with everything, it gets old, and you got to try something new, and you got to try something else new. God doesn't get old. The deeper we go into God, the more we are able to experience that soul satisfaction that we so desire, that we look everywhere else for. So what does this mean to us? Well, what this means for us is we are shown in this psalm a way to talk to God, a way to appeal to God that references His glory, that references the fact that His name being lifted high is His most important thing. And we're going to see Asaph is going to go, God, do this, not because, wow, it really stinks right now, but because this makes you look good, which I don't know about you guys, that I don't pray that way. I usually pray, Lord, this is terrible. Get it out of here. I don't like it. Not, Lord, you know, people know that I'm a believer, and people know that I'm a pastor, and I'm going through this right now, and it's making your name look bad. Lord, glorify your name. And if it means I got to stay in it for a while, glorify your name. If it means pull me out, glorify your name. And that's the picture that we see here. And so as we're going through the psalm, watch how Asaph is constantly appealing to God's honor, his name. When it says, for the praise of your name, that's saying, God, that's because of who you are. So look at that as we go through this. So this psalm written by Asaph, was a, he was a, a contemporary of King David and Solomon. This psalm actually is still sung to this day, and not just at New Life Church, because we're going through the songs of the summer, but this song is sung every single Friday in Jerusalem in front of the Wailing Wall. 
and it has been for the last 80 years. So this is a psalm that to this day is being sung by Orthodox Jews saying, Lord, are you going to come and fix this? I thought that was an interesting thing. The original, when this song was originally written, it was written when the temple was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586. It's a community lament, which means it's a cry for God to do something. This psalm throughout has a recognition of the fact that Israel is in relationship, in covenant with God. And because of that, they should be treated differently than all the people around them. But also what's hidden in this psalm is the fact that Asaph's not appealing to God and saying, God, you did something wrong. He's going, yeah, we kind of deserve what we've got. But Lord, can you please stop and, and, and lift us back up so that your name will be made great? So that's the picture we see here. So now let's look at the psalm. So we've got God is a jealous God. We know the, the basics of this psalm. Let's actually dig into it now. This psalm provides for us a picture of how to call out to God in suffering because of his glory, because of the glory of his name. I know it's wordy, but each of those words matters. This is a, this is a picture for us. What this psalm is doing is this psalm is giving us a green light to call out to God and say, God, make your name great in my life by getting rid of what this situation is doing, getting rid of this suffering, getting rid of this terrible situation. Because think about it. They're looking at their temple is destroyed. Their nation is under siege. And by inference, that means that God, the place where they go to worship, it's not like a church, right? We can go do church right outside these doors and it doesn't change. We can go do church up in the mountains. We can go do church at the beach. It doesn't change, but for the Jews, their temple's gone, their church is gone, their worship's gone. Synagogues were just little temporary things. They weren't the place that they'd go. The Jews would travel to the temple three times a year, at least, for feasts and for the yearly covering of sins, the atonement. So this is a, this is a big prayer. This is an understanding of, a, of, of what they're going through, but at the same time, how to approach God. And we don't pray this way. We don't pray to ask God to fix things because of his name. We pray because fix things because I don't like it. Fix things because it hurts. And I think he still wants that. We've seen that in other psalms, but this is just another way to do it. So the first thing Asaph does is he describes the situation. Verses 1 through 3. He's going to rehearse what happened. He's going to say there was destruction, there was defilement. There was death. There was dishonor. So the first thing he does is he describes the situation. And this is not because God doesn't know what's going on. It's because he's saying, look, I want you to see what we're going through, Lord. Just like when something happens and a kid, one of my children, come to me and say, Dad, Dad, look at this. It may be something that I figured out a long time ago or one of the other kids has already figured out. But for that child, look at this. And if it's something that hurts, he's got my attention or she's got my attention even more so. And so this is calling God's attention to it. Verse 1, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. By nations, he means the non-Israel, the pagan nations. And by inheritance, that word means property. Literally, this means Israel, specifically the capital, Jerusalem. They've come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem 
in ruins. And by defile, that means to make unclean. It could be just that they entered the temple. It could also be that they did some of the things that some of the pagan emperors had done, and they would sacrifice a pig in the temple, or they would do other unclean acts in the temple. Jerusalem is in ruins, literally heaps of destroyed stuff is what the Hebrew says. It's heaps, mounds of destructed stuff. Verse 2, they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. This description is a description of what's happening, but you'll also notice that Asaph is also putting in call to God for motivation to do something. Look at how he, he, he talks about everything. He doesn't just say, hey, God, they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They've killed some of the Israelites, the Jews. But look at what he says. It says, your inheritance, your holy temple, your servants. And so what he's calling on is he's calling on the relationship here. He's saying, God, these are your people. This is your chosen. You didn't have to choose us. Remember, he chose Israel because it was the smallest runt of the litter. He didn't choose Israel because they were the strongest. And by choosing the smallest and growing them into a mighty nation, he was saying, look, I am the God that you all need to worship. Ironically here, Asaph doesn't say, you unjustly did this. There's no echoing of what Job said where he goes, I didn't do anything wrong. Instead, he just goes, yeah, all this bad stuff happened. We know we sinned. We deserve this. There's no claim here of an undeserved punishment or discipline. Instead, he goes, yeah, we got this happening to us. Lord, can you make it shorter? Next thing we see in verse 4 is that he urges God to recognize the discredit. Urges God to recognize the discredit. So the, the idea here is that he's going, look at what happens when people can just march into Israel and destroy your people. It makes you look like you're not there. It, looks, it makes you look like you don't care. Now, last week in Psalm 78, we saw the picture of the history of Israel and how God cared even when they sinned. And so Asaph's tapping into that again, and he's saying, look, when, when you let them come in here and destroy everything, it makes you look bad. It makes you look like you don't care. Verse 4, we have become a taunt to our neighbors mocked and derided by those around us. Those words, taunt, mocked, and derided, are all very similar. It's just all the bad ways they could talk about us are all put together there. This would have hurt, this destruction would have hurt no matter what, but it hurts even more that as they are destroying things, they're saying, where's your God now? I thought you were, I thought God was for you. Looks like he's not here. All of that is happening. Notice one thing here about this is that uh, talking to God in our suffering and trying times is allowed. When things are not going the way we want, notice there is this ability to talk to God. It's not complaining. It's not even giving up. Instead, it's saying, Lord, you know what's happening. This is terrible. Talk to God. Also, that doesn't fit with us sometimes too. We try to find all sorts of ways to deal with our suffering instead of taking it to the Lord. The next thing we see in verse 5 is we see that we ask God questions. We ask God questions. And sometimes these questions are pretty sharp. This question here is pretty sharp. 
Why, God? Why did you do it that way? There's a hundred other ways, and I'm just a finite human. Why did you do it that way? You could have come up with a hundred thousand million different ways to do it. Even when the questions appear to question him, we see the psalmist asking that. There is one caveat here. The psalm doesn't end in verse 5. It keeps going. The psalmist is not giving us permission to just ask a question and then walk away. Instead, ask the question and dig down into the answer, because the answer is right there, and we'll see it as we go through. Verse 5, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Again, this idea of jealousy here is like the marriage relationship between God and Israel. Unlike human jealousy, which is irrational, this one is God's passionate commitment to his bride, to his church, to his nation. And he says, anytime you have a wandering eye and you go away, I am jealous to bring you back. We saw that in Psalm 78. We see that in Exodus 34. The people were unfaithful, and God is jealous and wants to bring them back. Tim Keller writes about it this way. He said, God allowed the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian army because of his jealousy. It is love angered by anything that is defacing or destroying the loved one. A parent's love, for example, is jealous for a child's success and happiness and is zealous to remove any sins that are barriers to these things. If God had allowed Israel to go in its idol-worshiping way, its people would have been totally lost to him. Christians, we know that in Christ, our sins can't bring us into condemnation. But because we are so loved by God, he will discipline us if we go astray in order to bring us back to him. So these, these questions are sharp, they're pointed, but he doesn't just stop there, he moves on. The next thing we see is we are to challenge God about who is suffering. Challenge him about who's suffering. Now, I, I struggled with that word, and I, I, I tried to find a better word for it, but it really is saying, Lord, why is it that we are suffering by these evil people and they're not? That's what he asks. He says, why is, it that, why, why is it that we're suffering? I know that we sinned and we deserve the discipline, but why is it that we are still suffering when they are not? Why is it the sufferers are suffering rather than those who are causing the suffering? Verse 6, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Habitation just means the place where he resides. It means Israel. This section gives, guides us through how to feel in a situation like this. The question is not how long are we to suffer, but how long are you going to allow these nations to continue to destroy, to continue to persecute, to continue to kill your children? Out on the table out there, we have a, a prayer guide for the, the nations. The, it's the, I think it's the top 50 nations where it's difficult to be a Christian. I encourage you, if you haven't grabbed one of those already, take one of those and make it a part of your daily prayer. There are places in this world where this means a whole lot more than where we live and that they are being challenged consistently, constantly, and being put to death. I read about um, some, some Christians that were martyred just this last week and just hearing their stories and going, man, we've got it easy here. Yeah, I mean, it's not totally easy. It's not a cakewalk, but it's nothing by comparison. And so this gives us an, a, a picture of how to cry out to Lord, the Lord in this situation. But notice here, 
They're not saying, we want to avenge. Lord, we're going to let you avenge. They're not asking for permission to go kill them themselves. Instead, they're asking for God to step in and do it. Because we want God to do it his way. We don't want to muck it up like we do. We don't want to mess it up like we do if we were to step in and have revenge. And then they, notice he brings out the, the, the Jacob here. And so even as he's saying Jacob, he's reminding himself, God, you were good to Jacob. You were good to all of Israel. And even though right now we can't see how good you're going to make this, we trust in the fact of all that you've done. See, this psalm is really a leapfrog forward from last week's psalm where we dug into, look at how Israel has been blessed all the way through. Now, verses 8 and 9, I'm not going to lie, these are my favorite two parts of this verse, of this, this psalm. Verses 8 and 9, appeal to God's compassion. Appeal to God's compassion. I like to read um, the fiction novels. And there's, a, there's a series of them that I've been reading, kind of in between reading mystery novels. I just discovered Agatha Christie. I know, it took me a long time. But I've been reading some Agatha Christie, and on the other side, I've been reading these spy novel type things. And in it, they're interacting a lot with, with Muslims and interacting with ISIS and, and, you know, all these war battle things. Anyways, it's, I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to even say that I read them, but I do. I like them. So, but in this, they talk a lot about Allah. And the one thing that Allah does not have is he does not have compassion. He does not have compassion. He has a lot of judgment. Now, they, they may talk about compassion, but it's always based on some sort of works. It's always based on, you know, kind of hoping he's in a good mood as opposed to he is compassion. And so right here in this psalm, we get to see that God is a compassionate God. Even though all this terrible stuff is happening, Asaph says, God, let your compassion, not, hey, can you put some compassion on? He's going, this is who you are. You are compassion. Pour it out on us. Overflow onto us. And even in this, you still see it's all bound up in God's name. Look at verse 8. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. That means the things that, sins we've done in the past. Let your compassion, your mercy, your kindness come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Verse 9, help us, O God of our salvation, a God of our deliverance. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Look at that. Deliver us for the, save us for the glory of your name and deliver and atone for us for your name's sake. When a nation is defeated, that God is seen as defeated as well. And so the God of Israel had been defeated. So right here they're saying, save us, make your name great through this. It's a mark of spiritual maturity to say, I'm worried about God's reputation, not mine. So the, the author here, Asaph, makes two really bold requests. We see it in the first part where he says, do not remember our former sins, our past sins. See, this is a weird thing to think about. If God's all-knowing, he knows everything. But throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, we see this picture where the psalmist says, God, forget. God, can you please forget? And God doesn't ever say, no, I can't forget. He says, okay. That's a really crazy thing to think about, that God will forget our forgiven sins. Isn't that amazing that that is even a possibility? I mean, that is the gospel right there, isn't it? 
It would be amazing if he just forgot our sins and then it was just a blank slate. But look at it. Not only that, but it says, show your compassion, your mercy, your grace. This is that second part of the gospel, which is not just, hey, get rid of my sins, so I'm down to zero, but with your mercy and grace, now look at me like I obeyed. Look at me like I've done everything right. And he says, for your glory, for your namesake. In essence, he's saying, God, this is the God you are. We need you to act like it. We need you to step in, stop this suffering for your namesake, forget our sins, and then treat us as if we've never sinned. That is the gospel right there. I mean, the, the, the two problems that we see here are they want relief, but they also want God's name to be made great. And, and the psalm is saying these go hand in hand. These are not separate things. Well, I want bad stuff to stop happening to me, and I also want God's name to be great. He says these are one and the same. God's people are doing well when God's name is being made great. They've got to go together. And so this, this middle right here is the hope. And again, he's going to end in verse 13 with hope again, but we see hope here that God is not going to abandon his plans of redemption because to do so would deny who he is. It denies the core being of who God is. And so there's hope here because of who God is. The next thing we see in verses 10 through 12 is we see a plea for God to take redress. A plea to God to take redress. What this means is, he said, he's, not, he's not saying, because we've suffered, he says, no, because of others and, and because of your name, come in here and fix it. This word redress means to fix it, put it back to right, set to right, remedy. And so we see this call here. He says, look at how bad it's gotten. God, step in and fix it. Verse 10, why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging on of the outpouring blood of your servants be known among the nations before your eyes. These heathen nations are mocking them, saying, Oh, where's your God? Is he sleeping? Is he dead? Well, maybe he doesn't exist. And so they're saying, Show yourself, God. Show yourself here. Verse 11 Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. That word great power means strong arm. I like that picture of according to your strong arms, step in. And save those who are doomed to die. And then verse 12, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. The word sevenfold just means completely. Step in and completely fix the situation. We all know what it's like to have these dual desires for being rescued out of a situation and also for payback for this, the wrongs that we've felt. This song shows us that. It, it, it brings this out, this idea of they've been put to death, Lord, step in and avenge it, sevenfold, not five, not six, sevenfold. This looks, this looks very unchristian. But in fact, if we were to be honest, we, we've felt this, haven't we? Having water problems, sorry. This, this, this final quick burst, though, in verse 13 tells us that there is hope, that there is a picture of we don't have to step in and right all the wrongs. God's got control of that. It tells of praise, that no matter how long it takes to get there, praise is coming. And praise is the end that will replace our hurt and our pain. 
And this is only possible, this, this last step into verse 13 is only possible with forgiveness. Forgiving those who have wronged him. And we have a picture of that in Christ as he is nailed to the cross, as all the sins are poured out on them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. It's a, it's a phrase that's been uttered by many, many martyrs as they go to meet the Lord, even up to this day. But this forgiveness is what leads to verse 13, where we praise him. The psalm finishes with praise. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. We will continue to glorify you. This is a real switch, isn't it, from verse 12 to 13. It's kind of jarring. This final verse is even disorienting. This plea for salvation and payback give way to praise. And not only just praise now, but praise forever. This is the perfect definition of hope. In this moment of suffering, no new situation seems to be at hand, but yet he says, we are going to praise you. Israel's long history has told them that God's going to come through. Your history, your long history, tells you God is going to come through. And ultimately, this is because of what was done on the cross with Christ. Throughout the New Testament, when Christ's sacrifice on the cross is discussed, it's discussed for the glory of God's name. 1 John 2.12 says, I am writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. This, this picture of his glory being the most important thing, that's why Christ came to fix your relationship with him. So for those of you here who are united with Christ, we are like a married couple to God. We are his bride. And what this means is we keep our vows to God. We forsake all others. We cleave to him. We honor him only. So the jealousy of God, the fact that God is 100% devoted to the glory of God is glorious. It's encouraging. It's empowering for us in that he is for us. It's a comfort. It's a hope. Because God's omnipotence, all those omnis we talked about, are 100% for you as his bride. Look at this quote. It's just too good. I had to just leave it in. Since God is infinitely jealous for the honor of his name, anything and anybody who threatens the good of his faithful wife will be opposed with divine omnipotence. That's good news for the faithful wife, the faithful people of God. What a powerful picture in that God's 100% power is 100% devoted to keeping us right where we need to be. That's his jealousy. And that's what this psalm touches on. But for those who are not united to Christ, those of you who are going a different direction, who are absolutely all about following self and not obedience to God, not submitting to God, this jealousy is a threat. Because ultimately, you are supposed to be in relationship with God and you are now playing the role of the harlot. You've sold your heart to the world. You make a cuckold out of God. And that's a scary place to be in because God's omnipotent jealousy is I'm going to get you back by any means necessary. And the amazing part about it is you can choose right now to follow God in this situation. 
and fix the situation because this jealousy of God for our hearts, for our devotion is meant to be a comfort. It's meant to be an encouragement. It's meant for us to feel how loved we are as we walk through this world as strangers and exiles. He wants a relationship with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we absolutely thank you for the truth in this psalm. We thank you, Lord, that it's not... You're not a God that is angry some days and not angry other days and is inconsistent, but Lord, you are 100% consistent and your love that you pour out on us and to us, which makes your name look so great, is consistent. And Lord, we know that each and every one of us has had times where we've walked away and we've decided to try the, the things of the world, Lord. But Lord, we know that you're a, a God that is a pursuing God. And you are coming after us, Lord. And I pray that today, as people here in this room are hearing that, that you are a God that is pursuing them, that they would surrender and come back to their faithful bridegroom, the one who put his life here on earth down for our sake. So I pray that that would be what would happen. Lord, for those of us that that do know you, I pray that we would fall more deeply into your arms and trust you even more and not even put a passing glance at the things of this world, but instead keep our eyes and our hearts fully devoted to you. Lord, thank you for giving us that opportunity to love and to know you. In your name, amen.